0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 254, and today's guest is Riddick Malhotra, co-founder and CEO of Savvy. Entrepreneurship, is it something that is taught or is it just ingrained into some people? Well, personally, I think the answer is both. But in the case of Riddick, it is deeply rooted in his DNA. His journey into entrepreneurship started in middle school when he built a successful web development and hosting business. He's now a successful serial entrepreneur as his last two companies were acquired by Box and Brex. Well, Riddick's next company, Savvy, could be his biggest success yet. Savvy is a next-generation wealth management firm that supercharges its wealth managers with enhanced software, sales and marketing automation, and back-office servicing. The company recently announced a $7.3 million seed round of funding, which was co-led by Index Ventures and Thrive Capital. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the benefits of having a wait list before you launch your product, how Riddick got involved in entrepreneurship and stories from his earlier companies, his experience as a Teal Fellow, a look at his prior two companies, Stream and Elf, plus advice on the acquisition process, all the details on Savvy and how they are disrupting the financial services industry, advice on applying to Y Combinator, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any episodes by subscribing to the VentureFist podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Oh, and while you're there, don't forget to leave us a review. It will really help us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Riddick. Riddick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you cuz you're a s- successful serial entrepreneur that uh you know we're going to talk about a success you had in junior high which I think this is the first time I've talked to a serial entrepreneur that it had success even that early on so that I just thought that was such a cool part of your story uh but one of the things that I noticed from some of the successes that you've had was you've had Uh, products that before they launched, they had a wait list. And I know this is something that some entrepreneurs struggle with. So I wanted to talk to somebody that has had success doing it uh, because I've seen uh, the debate. Should I do it? Should I not have a wait list? Does it build up demand and customer acquisition? If I do it, how do I do it right? And, And what are some of the pitfalls of doing it wrong? So here I am talking to someone who's had some success. So talk about the benefits of a wait list.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we've done a waitlist three times, two with the startups and then one actually at at Brex post-acquisition. And uh, I'm a a big proponent of them. Um, The reason to do a waitlist, first and foremost, is uh, to basically gauge customer demand and draw affinity to your brand ahead of you as a service or startup or product. Uh, being ready to service that demand Uh, and that's important and uh, for a number of reasons but the primary uh, reason is that you want to test product market fit with the smallest amount of information you have so even ahead of you being able to you know readily onboard customers which is you know even a stronger sense of product market fit if they're using it the first thing you can do is does the value prop and the messaging that you have resonate with the intended target customer and the, the the best way we've found to do that is put up a landing page with the, you know, the the things that you do plan on offering, don't make it too aspirational, Uh, and then put up a waitlist. And where, uh, if you start getting demand, then you know you're onto something. And then you also have a readily readily kind of available email base that you can actually reach out for feedback, potentially be beta testers of your product uh, and whatnot. Where We've seen it go, uh, you know, poorly is if you're using a waitlist to uh, do some sort of a growth hack or something to to basically generate demand, hoping you can convert everyone, that's not the best way to do it, right? Then it's actually better to just wait until you're kind of ready to actually service these customers, because the reality is conversion off a waitlist as time goes on is naturally going to be lower than, you know, someone signing up and you'd be able to readily service them, you know, that day or the, the you know, within a few days. Uh, so those are kind of the and
0: cons. Well, that's a great clarification because I think people view it as a growth hack and it's like, okay, I need to get, you know, just hopefully a bunch of signups and to do that, I need to create this fear of missing out that I'm going to have this wait list, but don't do it with that intent because that's not the intent. The intent is to do it the smallest amount possible to hopefully get some feedback and hopefully it grows from there. So that's a great, great clarification. So, all right, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child?
1: So I grew up in uh, the Bay Area, uh, specifically right around San Jose, California, and uh, Cupertino, California. Um, and you know, I I, I was uh, uh, my parents had immigrated there uh, when I was a, a kid, and uh, just being around technology back in the '90s, uh, you know, I think that's where I drew a lot of affinity. I you know, I happened to go. Uh, to a school that uh, was on the pilot program for Apple's new technology for education um, uh, initiatives back in the 90s. And, you know, Apple being kind of in that area, uh, we happened to kind of win that lucky draw as a public school. And uh, what that meant was in, you know, as a kid growing up, I had access to all these computers around me in the classroom, which I kind of drew this really uh, strong affinity to. Um, And so, uh, you know, it it was, uh, as much of it was, you know, how do I, uh, what what can a computer do and try to, you know, understand everything about it, all the way to tinkering around with the internet and learning all these new things. I just found it super fascinating as a kid, where you had all this information and the ability to do whatever you want kind of at your fingertips. So that's really, uh, you know, the, the nexus of all my interest in technology.
0: Yeah. And I already gave a little bit of a hint of you being a serial entrepreneur. And what I thought was fascinating was your journey into entrepreneurship started in like middle school. Like you started like a web development hosting type company that did end up having some of the assets purchased or, I mean, no matter how small of an outcome it was, it still is something that you did at that age, which is phenomenal. So what was that all about?
1: Yeah, so that really, that spark came from, you know, in elementary school, really just loving the internet, I found myself, I could, you know, play games online and, and you know, learn all this new stuff. And uh, I realized, hey, I, you know, how can I make my own games, right? And so then uh, I started by just making websites just to put some information up about, you know, my favorite cartoon shows and whatnot, uh, which kind of helped me learn how to uh, do web development. Uh, and by the time middle school had rolled around um you know i uh, i really wanted to uh figure out hey can i actually make money doing this right so i was putting up content online um and so uh i started off by making a number of different websites that put you know free flash games that you could play online and put some advertising on them uh then i put some on for kind of other different kind of pieces of content so i kind of just did this in a serial fashion where i was making a bunch of these websites and uh, those are great, you know, for a middle school kid, it was uh, generating all this ad money uh, and, uh, you know, I had a blast doing it. Uh, and it was kind of a spare uh, spare time uh, gig where come home from school, finish homework, go, go outside to play and then come back and uh, spend the nights kind of working on this stuff. And then ultimately what led to uh, the, the main business, the web hosting kind of services business was I realized I kept having to do the same thing over and over again, right? set up a website, find some web hosting, buy a domain, kind of figure out all those details and then kind of do it a number of different times. And I said, well, hey, if I have this problem uh, and I figured out a way to just streamline it and do it super quickly for myself, I'm sure other people would probably find this valuable. And so, uh, you know, what I did then was started leasing uh, dedicated server space from uh, others and basically reselling parts of it for shared web hosting services and offered kind of an implementation end-to-end service as well. Um, and, you uh, that just kind of grew word word of mouth. Um, I think I had a total of 350 clients all around the world um, paying me a monthly fee, and uh, it was just me doing customer support uh, over instant message and email, and making sure everything was was on. So that was the business.
0: I love that story. Honestly, like that is like this is middle school, and you pieced all that together to think, wait. You know, I I can do the hosting side. I can get recurring revenue. Like, come on, like that's just light years ahead of where I certainly was in middle school. So that is phenomenal. So you went off to study electrical engineering, computer science at UC Berkeley. Uh, what did you work on there? Because you were you were doing some, uh, you know, it looked like more internships before you kind of launched onto your next adventure.
1: Yeah. So I I uh, you know tapped into the the uh, really love for technology and software and kind of uh, studied that at, at Berkeley and um, was kind of on the more uh, traditional software engineering path. So I, you know, I really wanted to see what I enjoy software engineering as a profession. And so went and uh, I think my first year did an internship at Twitter uh, in 2011. Uh, so the company was right around under 500 employees at the time, uh private company uh, growing quickly. And so learned a ton over there. And I think it clarified a number of things for me, Um, that experience and a number of other kind of uh, things that I saw at Berkeley kind of being surrounded by folks in Silicon Valley startups that, you know, in the early 2010s starting to kind of take off. Um, I I learned about uh, two programs called Y Combinator and the Teal Fellowship. And I think the combination of those two, and then also a good understanding of what professional software engineering looks like, I think really solidified for me that I, I was kind of taken back to those middle school days of my love for just building uh new things my love for software engineering and, and technology and i had the opportunity with these two programs that that i'd applied to uh to go and drop out of school and actually pursue entrepreneurship uh kind of uh full-time with that that first venture um so that's kind of my progression from college out to the next startup
0: and, and even that so you even started like a, a, a learning academy is what you called it. So Silicon Valley prep, which is another business that you started that grew to significant revenue. So that was like, I mean, what, like, I think it was a million dollars of annual recurring revenue. If I, my research is correct.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, uh, that was a, there was a summer business that we kind of ran and expanded uh, just uh, me and two other friends and, uh, that uh, it actually was not a technology business, it was mostly just, hey, how can we, you know, teach uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers some extracurricular kind of academics, whether it was speech and debate, uh, you know, mathematics, um, uh, or uh, just, uh, you know, other related subjects. Uh, and uh, that was very operational. So we figured out how to scale out operations, hire other folks, uh, kind of figured out a number of different things. And I would call that maybe a, a, a good education in, in uh, learning the non-technical sides of operating a business marketing and and just servicing customers and payments and whatnot
0: all right so fast forward to where you kind of left us with the field fellowship so uh this is a program that's really well known now but you are part of the second batch so it was still pretty early on um what was the decision that went into you know applying and obviously pursuing that and like your parents were like yeah sure leave college and and go do this thing which you know the, the whole foundation of what it is, it was built for someone like you, right? Someone who's very entrepreneurial that is light years ahead of what college could probably teach you. And to, what was the stipend? Was it a hundred thousand a year is what that's correct. Yeah. So yep. for you to hopefully build something of magnitude. So anyways, what was your thought process of doing that instead of finishing your degree?
1: So for me, um, the, it, it was it was pretty carefully thought out where I, um, and maybe to preface this i i i never came in from the mentality that hey college has no value i always looked at it at what are the different trade offs you're taking right so spending time in college or hey this program or maybe you know i'm sure maybe some other program that might exist today and the way that i really thought about it was look if my goal is to go and uh start a company the eventually right the the best advice that i'd gotten was try to you know if you have the ability to do so uh go and kind of uh, plunge in, either working for a startup or just start something if you have the the right ingredients, whether it's team, idea, you know, and and uh, the opportunity. And so for me, I think just looking at the trade-offs between college and, you know, program with Teal Fellowship or Y Combinator or something that's geared towards that, I found that, look, this is, uh, you know, uh, has high credibility with a, you know, prominent backer at the time um, uh, with Peter Teal. uh gives you enough funding to survive kind of, you know, enough in the Bay Area um, and uh, get Get you know get things off the ground, and then the most important thing for me was that there's a whole community of other people that are like minded, um, and that was I think the the biggest missing factor for me previously just jumping out of school because otherwise it just felt very lonely. Like who else at the time was you know doing this? Uh, and you know fast forward to now, I think the narrative actually makes a lot of sense. The Teal Fellowship is a very successful program. Um, you know, has, it provides a great opportunity for folks that want an alternative and want to pursue maybe entrepreneurship or something else outside of uh, college. Um, but at the time it was unclear. So you have to kind of really think, uh, think this all through. Um, and, uh, look, the, the, the reality is for almost everyone, I would say college is definitely worth it. Um, and so really assessing whether or not the exception to drop out and actually do something is, uh, is always going to be important. Uh, otherwise you might find yourself in a program or a situation that, you know, with unintended consequences.
0: All right, so let's talk about stream. So, um, talk about how that idea came to fruition. Uh, you know, the, the Y Combinator process, what that experience was like, and what that taught you.
1: So, it, it was a funny, funny kind of um, uh, time. So, uh, we, I remember I, we had applied to um, uh, I'd applied to Y Combinator and uh, the Teal Fellowship at the same time, and I was interviewed. Kind of the final interview was on the same day. And so I remember the morning of getting the news uh, that uh, from the Teal Fellowship that we had gotten in, and um, and we're, we're going to go to Y Combinator to do our interview that day, and we'd get the results that same day. And our motivation, really, to, to join both programs um, was, you know, one was this kind of community of similar kind of uh, around the same age, dropping out of school. That was very nice uh, to have. Uh, and then Y Combinator was, at this point, you know, had built up a pretty good brand behind themselves with successful startups that they had funded. And so that was really, uh, really training grounds and kind of the, the call it the three-month entrepreneurship MBA uh, that that they would kind of equip you with. Um, and obviously, very kind of uh, high standards. And so the, the way that we had applied to Y Combinator actually was not with Stream. It was actually with this unique program that they had at the time called the No Idea Program. And the no idea program, I think only lasted two or three batches, but the, the entire concept was, hey, if we think that you're a credible founder, but may not have the best idea or have the right idea at the time, we'll still take you in and help you find that idea that you know that that could work and and kind of coach you you know beyond that basically just going even earlier into the life cycle of an entrepreneur and so uh, that's how we applied and our interview process was really judging our merits in terms of how we be as founders. Uh, they asked us to make something uh, kind of a, a simple product in a, a week to show that we could actually make uh, a software product or whatever we wanted. Um, and so uh, you know very fortunately I think they, they saw something in us uh, and we got into the program. And it actually took, uh, you know, even beyond the batch to really finalize on the idea of stream, uh, which we can certainly talk about. But, uh, you know, the it was certainly a unique experience. I think both Y Combinator and us were trying to figure out how best to arrive at the right idea, but not rush the process and just pick something because we had to. Uh, but tons and tons of learning, uh, obviously, from all the partners and, and the folks in the program at the time.
0: Yeah, and well, perfect segue. So let's talk about Stream. Like, how'd you come up with the idea? Because it's technology that we take for granted now, but back in 2014, 2013, this didn't exist.
1: It, exactly. So the, the concept for Stream, uh, or maybe I'll even start at the beginning, which is, uh, you know, one of the things that Y Combinator really said to, to for the best ideas with the best founders was solving one of your own personal problems that also you validated and happened to be a large market that could be, that other people had, you know, uh, you know high uh, as well as you could actually build into a large business and so uh you know we, we racked our brains and we went through a number of different you know ideas and problems and the one that kept kind of uh itching at at us and and uh something that i worked on kind of just in my spare time moving over, over the years was uh we always uh had this kind of external Hard drive uh, full of all kind of family photos and videos that we backed up. All these memories. I remember kind of digitizing all the physical photos and, and VHS videos that my dad and mom had kind of taken as growing up and put it on this drive. And then also kind of accumulating all this other media content and whatnot. And I remember thinking, hmm, this this drive has uh, you know I, I don't want to carry this around all the time, and it, you know if I lose it, I lose all these precious memories. And then uh, and then the other kind of nexus point was. Uh, working at twitter that summer uh, i remember we shared files across the company through an attached external hard drive to a wireless router and at the time you could do that where it would basically allow you to put files onto that router onto that drive that's attached to the router people can access it if you're on the same wi-fi network but it was plagued with a number of problems you know it it, it extremely slow uh sometimes the the copying f- files failed um you know if multiple people are accessing it it just kind of disconnects sometimes and so it had its own set of problems, and the thing that we realized with Stream was that okay, combining this personal problem and the fact that these large enterprises who have tons and tons of files to share uh, to figure out a solution could be something that's that's interesting. And to set the landscape, this is in 2012. At the time, Dropbox and Box and uh, Google Drive had solutions that allow you to, allowed you to sync your files to your computer. And ah, so that okay. was their main kind of product. So they, what they did was they would let you take all the files and say, okay, I'm going to copy them to my hard drive on my local computer. And that could work. However, the problem there that we found over and over again was these the amount of files in the cloud is way, I mean, you have way too much content there, especially in a large company when you're sharing across thousands of employees uh, that you couldn't realistically sync it down to your physical computer's hard drives, which by the way, are getting smaller with the advent of SSDs um, at the time. So it was a very specific problem, but it's super valuable for these large enterprises because they kept running into this issue. And so our solution to this was we built a, uh, what's called a, kind of a, a file system for Windows and Mac so that it would actually show up as actual real files on your computer. So you wouldn't have to download or go to some other website or access it through some you know app. It actually just seems like they're all there. But what, in fact, is happening is that the files are still stored in the cloud. And when you open a file, it actually streams the data on demand. So you might have like a a split-second lag because typically files aren't that big. Or if it's a video file, we will actually stream it while you're playing it. Um, But it allows you effectively to access these, you know, these maybe terabytes of files shared across a large enterprise without actually having to do the sync. And that kind of was this, it was this, it was this super technically challenging problem. You had, you know, we ran into a thousand different issues because you're creating kind of reverse engineering this technology with, within Mac and Windows. There's no easy way to build this stuff. And once we had solved all these problems, um, you know, we, we uh, uh, you know, had something that was uh, just a technically difficult problem. Uh, so it had a lot of technical defensibility behind it. So that was really the, the advent of that idea and the product.
0: Okay. And so the company was acquired by box and it was shortly after Y Combinator, right? Like, cause you raised a very minimal amount of seed funding from what I gathered. And then box acquired you in 2014, which was a pretty early exit. How did box even learn about what you're up to or, you know, was Aaron Levy like hanging out at Y Combinator? Like how how did, how did it even come together?
1: You know, it's funny, Aaron actually did come and give a talk at Y Combinator that batch. Uh, but at the time, we were still kind of fiddling around with a number of different ideas. Uh, and, you know, fast forward, we actually raised that uh, that funding uh, about six months after the batch ended. So uh, still early in the lifecycle the company, you know, we'd been working on for about two years. And... Uh, eventually kind of, as we, uh, as we kind of built out our team, which by the way, you know, for, for us at the time was really hiring our friends as they were graduating from college, um, and, uh, built out that kind of first version of the product and actually launched publicly and had this very, you know, high demand on this waitlist. Like people just wanted this, um, kind of left and right. That's actually when, uh, box kind of found us and, you know, in the press and, and approached us among a couple other um you know folks as well i remember dropbox was one of them uh, that had reached out and uh that's when we kind of considered uh you know uh, does it make strategic sense uh to actually take that acquisition and um you know ultimately uh we went with uh box they they had a pretty compelling kind of aaron levy is just a is just you know a gem to to hear talk i mean he's just so inspirational and and, and energetic that and you know to box's credit they actually stuck to the strategic plan they had of really we want to integrate this product into this suite because it's actually valuable. It wasn't one of those, you know, hey, come over and we're going to scrap the technology and, you know, put you on something else. And I think that was a super compelling story. And, you know, end to end, uh, we spent a few years at Box kind of, uh, doing exactly that and, uh, successfully got the product out, obviously kind of with the help of a number of very talented folks at Box, uh, kind of that, that had, uh, uh, you know, was working on the other solutions as well. So um, really kind could of couldn't have asked for more.
0: that that must have been very fulfilling because it wasn't a, an ACO hire where they were just hiring incredibly bright engineers and sunset the product immediately. And then after two years, or what is it on Silicon Valley, where the, they had the rooftop where all the founders would go just to <laughs> wait for their time to expire so they could do, do their next startup. Um, all right. So the second time through Y Combinator, did you go in with the idea already with with Elf?
1: Yep, that, that's right. So, uh, Elf, the quick kind of story there is, we got the same team back together. We, you know, spent a few years at Box, uh, did kind of integrated our, our our technology and and whatnot, and you know, the team, uh, you know, we'd launched the product, and so uh, by that point, you know, we left and uh, actually ended up starting a, a, you know, did a number of things in the middle uh, to kind of figure out what do we want to do next, but started a new company where the idea actually was let's. Go and explore a number of ideas. So we actually didn't join Y Combinator immediately after, uh, and so we explored a number of things in uh, you know whether it was crypto, some kind of fintech infrastructure, and just a number of things to figure out like what what are the things that you know kind of repeat that almost no idea process that we ran in in back in the first round of Y Combinator. And what we eventually arrived at was actually building a uh, kind of fintech, uh, core fintech infrastructure, specifically uh, the ledger that would track kind of all your transactions. If you're like a bank, a casino, or even a fintech company, and then kind of simple uh, on top of that, make it really simple for the banks and, and, and these institutions to actually do money movement across kind of different ledgers, across different kind of entities and a number of these, again, kind of very niche problem that exists across any kind of big Corporation doing transactions. Um and uh, we uh were actively kind of uh, you know, we we went into Y Combinator with that idea um, and uh had been building out that prototype. Uh so that was the second time.
0: All right. So talk about that experience because again, we're talking about an exit. Now this exit. Was before demo day, from what I gathered, right? So Brex came in and was like, "Wait a second, there's an opportunity." So, so how did that all like? Where did you get the product? How did Brex get involved?
1: Yeah, so so the second time in Y Combinator, completely different program, right? So the the to set the frame here, 2012 summertime was the first time, and this was winter in 2019, and so tons of change that happened. I mean, com- felt very different. um I mean, you know, Y Combinator, obviously incredible uh, organization. Uh, they had. You know, uh, streamline different kind of w- ways to help companies and and track progress and and everything. I mean, everything just felt super streamlined. And you know, but so many things were the same, right? Incredible partners, uh, amazing uh, batchmates, uh, all gearing towards demo day, and everyone kind of had this like very inspirational kind of energy. Um, and so for us, you know we had a good sense on what we wanted to build. Uh, We had done, I think uh, at that point, probably um, reached out to about a thousand different uh, kind of uh, folks at these large enterprises to see what would resonate in terms of what we could actually sell. Uh, These would be CIOs or, uh, you know, folks in the IT department and whatnot of, excuse me, uh, banks, casinos, uh, and other kind of uh, various financial institutions. And um, so we had a good target market, we had conversations, probably about over 100 of them, 1000 we reached out to and so we we knew what we're doing there. What eventually kind of came it it came down to was uh, Brex, the founders actually had given a talk at Y Combinator that batch and um, ended up actually, uh, you know, getting into a process where that transaction I would kind of quantify as more of a hybrid aqua hire. Uh, and, um, and, uh, hey, you know, we had some interesting technology, uh, where we uh, made the active decision to be to say, hey, you know, it actually does make sense to sell. Uh, because we had some inbound interest already from a few other folks, uh, kind of similar arrangement, hybrid aqua hire hybrid kind of technology. Um, and so, once we had some other inbound interest, we actually ran a process and kind of talked to the Y Combinator partners and just said, hey, look, you guys should really talk to the Brex folks. They wanna build this, you know, really interesting kind of, they, they wanna really expand in uh, their product suite beyond the the corporate credit card at the time to other things. And this actually might be kind of a very good fit. Uh, and so kind of just uh, ran the process and happenstance, uh, one thing led to another and uh, there was a really strong fit there.
0: Um, and so that happened in 2019. So the other companies in your cohort must've been like, what, these elf guys, like they've already got people like, like knocking down their door for an acquisition. Like, what are we doing wrong?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, uh, look, I have to give it credit to the, the, the one thing I remember, uh, uh, someone saying really early on in my career is that. Uh, sometimes overnight success is just something in the making for five to ten years in the uh, you know down uh, down the line and uh, a lot of credit i think has to has to be given to look i think uh, what breck saw was uh, a team that had worked together for you know almost a half a decade at that point uh had an exit and knew how to build products and launch them and and had this technology that also happened to be very kind of valuable to what they i think uh, uh uh you know wanted and so um Really, it's the overnight success that you know had so many years kind of in the making, uh, and also uh, Brex took a bet there, so that's how it happened.
0: And then you spent a couple of years at Brex, which Brex has gone on to you know become a massive unicorn success story that's continuing to scale and and uh, do some amazing things. So, what did you work on while you were there? Was it still this original idea, or did it transform?
1: yeah, so when we joined, um, the the first thing that we worked on was this product called Brex Cash, which is effectively a replacement for a business bank account. So uh, Brex had the business you know corporate credit card uh, that was you know doing really well at the time. Um, and uh, they wanted to expand that and say uh, and offer this corporate kind of banking functionality as well. Uh, and uh, you know, once we came in, you know we had the kind of know-how of okay, we know how to build this like financial ledger, kind of this money movement technology. Well, this last step is basically, uh, how do we kind of add a you know customer facing product on top of it on top of this infrastructure that we know already how to build, and so you know with the help of uh, you know a ton ton more people at Brex, um, uh, we had uh, a large part of the company kind of all all you know uh, all moving towards launching this new product called Brex Cash. Um, that's gone you know that was in twenty nineteen and that's gone on to be wildly successful as well as kind of one of Brex's premier products as part of their suite. Um, and so that was really the first thing uh, that, I, that I personally worked on there um, on the product management side. And then uh, the two other kind of initiatives there, uh, I really found myself kind of thinking, look, I think, uh, you know, there's uh, certain skills I might uh, be good at uh, this kind of zero to one approach of building new products. Um, and uh, that would be helpful if I want to go start something else uh and uh and the other one was really kind of assessing other companies i'd, I'd done a bit of investing in my time they obviously been part of a couple m a transactions and so i actually spent some time uh on the m h side of the world uh looking for other companies that we brought in um either for talent or technology um so that was kind of second act and then the third act was again kind of going back to that zero to one approach uh setting up uh helping set up kind of the. Third business line at Brex called the spend management line of uh, products. Uh, so those, the thesis behind that was Brex offers really important kind of financial tools for a business today, which is corporate card and a corporate bank account. And so the next question was, how can we make compelling software to actually use on top of the the banking and and corporate card, right? Your spend and store of money. So. Uh, things like bill payment software, uh, reimbursement software for employees, or expense management, expense tracking software. So that was really that third product line that we ended up starting. So those are the, kind of the three acts at Brex.
0: All right, so next, we're gonna talk about your next startup and current companies. So Savvy, what is Savvy? And what was the uh, you know thought of starting another company there?
1: Yeah, so Savvy is uh, a technology-enabled wealth management firm. Um, and uh, the model behind it is uh, it's very similar to maybe uh, Compass on the real estate side, uh, or kind of uh, another another analogy we'd like to use is uh, new front insurance on the commercial insurance side. Uh, and what we mean by that is basically we're kind of this full stack firm where we go higher Wealth managers who already have an existing book of business and also even acquire small wealth management firms with an existing book of business and bring them under, uh, you know, into the savvy umbrella. And basically, uh, that's kind of one half of the business. And we supercharge them with the other half of the business, which is building this proprietary software and technology for both the wealth managers themselves and their end clients. uh, And uh, to basically help them across three things one, really make them way more efficient with their time. So they spend less time doing back office tasks and more time with their clients. Uh, Number two, help them with sales and marketing automation to grow their books of business uh, using much more tech company style approaches. And then uh, number three, give their end clients uh, much better digital experience and access to other financial products uh, versus what traditionally is kind of limited to uh, you know email communication or Excel spreadsheets to actually you know uh, get the job done, and so that's really the the company there, um, and that you know the the, the I think uh, the, there, there was there's two pieces uh, to how this got started right. One was what was the impetus to even start a new company, uh, which I think is an important question that anyone should ask, uh, whether it's a new founder or a second or third time founder. Um, and also, how was this the idea that, you know, made, really, made sense? And so the first one on starting a new company, it really came down to, um, you know, I, I decided to leave Brex um, earlier in 2021. I, uh, and I actually just wanted to take some time off, uh, just spend some time, kind of clear my head, think about what would be next. And the, the thing that kept coming back to me was, you know, what would I, as a as a kid back in middle school, starting this web hosting services business, think? And I think the the, the innocence that you have as a kid, um, you know, you have all these grand aspirations that you can dream about at the time. That you know, I think over time kind of get whittled away with reality. And I think the grand aspiration always kept coming back to me, which was, um, look, an, an exit is an amazing outcome. But at the end of the day, the little kid in me would have always said, hey, you know, how come you didn't build and long lasting enduring large business? Right. And I think it's it's uh, that kept eating at me. And I think um, that kind of propelled me to say, look, you know, I, I do think starting a new company uh, is kind of the most innate uh, innately. I think that's that's what I would want to do. And that's what gives, I think, just me, if I think about it, happiness um but you can't just kind of say that wake up one day and say that uh and so the question was look when to do it right so i said no rush i don't i don't care if it's you know tomorrow uh or if it takes four months six months a year two years whatever it is and so then the second part was what is the right thing to work on and that i think you know uh came from again looking at kind of a personal problem we're kind of that same you know, philosophy as uh, the other two companies really understanding what is it that is maybe a personal problem, uh, at least in the first company, a personal problem that actually has a large business behind it. And I think this is, uh, this I qualify as, you know, certainly a fantastic problem to have, but after the first exit to box, uh, we, you know, the one of the, the pieces of advice I'd gotten was go find uh, a wealth manager to help you with you know all the, these new financial, all the new finances that you might have to deal with, and um, I, I think over the seven years since having to do that, you know, I'd worked with a number of different advice, uh, different you know wealth managers, um, each kind of good in their own way, but I think the thing that kept coming back to me was uh, you know how come there isn't a strong tech you know technology forward solution out here? How do I have to always be you know the one doing looking at spreadsheets or doing calls and emails and at some point I think I was snail mailing documents in because there was no digital signing solution. And so that always got me first and and digging in more over the years, it's no one's fault it's just that the tooling that's available on the wealth manager side, Uh, isn't geared that way, right? There's a lot of point solutions that exist for wealth managers to do financial planning or, you know, hey, portfolio management or a number of these things. But there isn't some one unified tool that bridges both the client experience to the financial advisor, financial manager, like the wealth manager's kind of almost dashboard of tools uh, and uh, makes it kind of in-houses it all kind of as one entire firm. Because the best, most ideal experience was going to be a firm that could offer their clients the best financial products uh, and advice at the best, most compelling rates in the most easiest, you know, communication way possible. Um, And also arm their wealth managers with all the tools to actually do their job, which is working with clients best and less so the back office. And so that was really the thesis that kind of built up over those seven years. And um, in twenty twenty one. You know, I spent a number of years looking at companies to invest in that were tackling this kind of holistic problem, not just as a point solution, uh, but never found one that was very compelling. It was actually another kind of close friend from college that kind of uh, helped me walk through this and said, "Look, this is a obviously a massive market to go after." And uh, you know, I'd spent those seven years learning everything about finances, wealth management, taxes, all that stuff. And at this point, I was you know giving lectures on it. Uh, I was helping other people manage their money. I love just reading and talking about it all the time. And so he basically said, you know, why don't you go and kind of built this, this company? Um, and so that's kind of uh, the story and how it happened.
0: Why did you decide more? I, I like the compass analogy because you could have just built the platform, right? And here's the technology forward approach and you go sell this to all the wealth management companies. Why, you know, take that piece as part of your equation of your business model too, of actually managing the portfolios and having wealth advisors on staff
1: yeah that would we spent a lot of time thinking about so uh there's really two primary reasons the first that we found um really by studying compass's model and a number of other technology enabled services businesses um was that the uh number of technological solutions out there in the market that, were, that were, you know is, is quite a lot Uh, so wealth managers could choose to actually go and adopt software right and so then our question was well hold on what is holding them back um and it turns out that one of the the hardest challenges is actually getting these wealth management firms to adopt all this technology and actually implement it, right? Um, that's not their primary focus, right? They're not running a large operations and IT team, all the, you know, these most of these wealth managers. And so it, it just ends up being, and, and no one's kind of coaching them through how to actually use all this technology. Uh, and so some of the best, most technologically forward wealth managers we found actually have cobbled together eight, seven to eight different pieces of software uh, that they were using. Uh, and they basically were telling us at this point, number one, it's probably c plus quality is what they almost everyone kind of arrived at as the quality bar for the software um and number two uh, they spent 40 percent of their time just moving data around because none of these pieces of software talk to each other and so they have you know some information here this other piece of software generates these reports they cobble it all together and so they're just basically just you know fudging between all this data and those are the most advanced from a technological perspective now uh that was really one right so implementation problem if we just sell technology. And then the second one, which I think was core to the thesis was, look, if you want to improve the experience, both from a client perspective, all the way down to the, you know, the wealth manager, it's kind of a holistic firm approach uh, and uh, expand beyond just wealth management in the future, uh, which could mean, you know, actually being a firm that that originates other kind of financial products that would be compelling to its clients and actually do the, you know, brokerage activity, et cetera. You had to be able to, um, have that direct client relationship. And as a technology company, that would be very difficult for us to actually be someone that is kind of the, has the ability to have, you know, contact with the clients. Um, and, uh, we just kind of felt from a core thesis perspective, being kind of that full stack firm was the, was the best way to achieve that long-term goal.
0: Yeah, now, we'll, the way you explain it, I was like, yes, that's so true. I'm sure there's plenty of wealth management firms that would be the right customer, but not necessarily interested in my technology, nor are the people uh, that have been doing it their own way for several years likely to adopt those new habits. So to build that next generation firm that has both sides that are fully intertwined and working together cohesively is uh, is going to be game changing. Now, you just announced a new round of funding, so seed funding, $7.3 million. Uh, what was the thought of going out and, and raising, you know, institutional venture capital? Cause you raised capital before, but the exits were early before you had to go raise seed a rounds of, you know, million dollar rounds of funding.
1: Yeah, this time uh, we were very intentional about it. Uh, basically we said, look, this is uh, we're going to go and attempt to build a very large business here. The goal is to go take this, this company public uh, and, and, Finding the and that was really one, and then number two was it's also a very capital-intensive business uh, because we're going to be hiring and, and and acquiring these wealth managers um, and you know for to actually get this bootstrap off the ground, and so uh and so those are kind of the two primary reasons to say okay we need to go and you know raise uh, a lot more capital uh to be kind of more ambitious here, and then really the third one was from a you know we we uh, from an institutional perspective uh, institutional venture perspective we we found that the best we we didn't say that that was had to be a criteria but the way we approached it was who are the best partners um that have seen similar businesses and can help guide us uh kind of along at least the earliest stages and uh the more we did our research kind of the two you know maybe two to three let's call it three buckets of of uh investors that we found were one uh a number of these institutional uh players because they had the kind of the large uh obviously uh, venture balance sheets to actually go and deploy capital uh, to these technology-enabled businesses, where uh, capital is kind of one of the, the most important parts to get off the ground. And so, uh, you know, uh, we looked at folks that had emplo- uh, you know invested in like the Compass uh, uh, Compass of the World or Newfront and Flexport and number of those. And then number two was okay, let's actually go to those you know individuals directly uh, that have started those companies because, uh, of course, you know their advice and learnings are going to be. Invaluable. So that was, you know, another set of folks that we also raised capital from, and then number three were industry kind of experts. Um, so uh, wealth management, uh, you know, who had built uh, venerable kind of wealth management businesses uh, and uh, raised money from them as well. So that's really the three kind of buckets that we ended up raising money from.
0: And what's the, the the current stage of the company in terms of like the size of the team and what's your plans as far as hiring moving forward? So we're
1: now uh, uh, just at 12 people that uh, including the folks that have just signed and are starting later at this spot uh, and uh, that's uh, you know we so we started the company last July uh, 12 people now um, we, uh, we we don't think that you know we're gonna grow um, uh, too dramatically again in the from an employee headcount that you know that that's more of an output uh, of I think the other goals and so uh, really as the way we think about it is, uh, we're we're actively kind of uh, building out that that kind of end-to-end platform that we can uh, both for both clients and advisors we, we're you know uh, close to launching that um uh, at the end of the quarter uh, beginning of next quarter and then uh, actively also in uh, the middle of, of doing our, our first transaction to actually go and acquire uh, um, a, a wealth management practice and um, have a number of other ones that are kind of in the pipeline so we kind of kicked that go to market motion off uh earlier this quarter as well. Uh, and so basically the way we think about it is we have both of those sides, both the product and the the business called the go-to-market kind of, uh, starting to, to form a shape. And so as soon as we have enough conviction behind both of those, you know, both of those things are working, um, then it's, you know, that's, that's when we, we can confidently say, okay, then it's a question of how do we scale those two, right? Because once you can prove out that model is working in kind of Doing the acquisition of the product and kind of marrying the two, uh, then uh the question is can we raise additional capital to scale them out and just continually repeat and, and grow the business? because
0: yeah, I would imagine the next round would be significant if you're going to acquire a bunch of wealth management firms. Like that's going to be very capital intensive.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you know, we we think about it capital as as uh fungible between any form. So it could be uh, you know, uh venture capital, you know, is, is best to build. The, the product and, and the team primarily they operate the business. And then uh, other forms of capital like debt uh, would be great for uh, funding acquisitions. Um, and so uh, but yes, very capital-intensive business uh, to scale.
0: Well as we've discussed, you've been through Y Combinator a couple of times. So uh, lots of entrepreneurs have aspirations of being part of Y Combinator. So what advice would you give to founders on the application process and hopefully uh, being part of it?
1: Yeah, so I think the the application process itself, uh, you know, I'd recommend everyone to just fill out the application, regardless of the stage of the company or if you want to apply. Uh, I think they ask very smart questions uh, just about your business, so it actually helps you identify uh, what your conviction in the business and the answers are. So that's just first and foremost. But actually, more tactical advice, I would say, uh, number one, keep the answers short. Uh, that's actually it's, it's such a simple thing to say, but that's actually the uh, if you can be very concise in the way you describe your business and the advantages and all the questions, that actually shows that you know a lot about it because you know the salient points that are important to cover rather than kind of boiling the ocean and talking about a, you know, a thousand different things. Uh, and that's actually a strong uh, sense. it gives it's a, it's a strong indicator of being a good entrepreneur because you, you can get to the point uh, that, the, the clear points um, ASAP, uh, that's one. And number two, I think is focus always regards Y Combinator or not, focus on um, what are the proof points that you have product market fit? Because that's the main important, most important thing at, at you know, the early stage of the business. Uh, and that comes in very different forms, right? So obviously, you know that the best is, hey, we have revenue and we're growing at this this clip, that's you know, a clear sign, uh, product market fit. Um, you know we have customers using the product uh or beyond that hey we have a few uh, uh you know uh, we have a bunch of people on a waitlist um or uh you know even before then, we have you know a dozen people that have given us you know very similar feedback in the industry and said verbally that they would be willing to buy it right And there's all sorts of other flavors but really focusing on what is that kind of product market fit and how can you show that to someone else because what you're really doing is writing Almost like a persuasive essay to convince someone else that you're worth taking the risk on, and the more proof points you can provide to de-risk that, the better. And that's true for Y Combinator, for raising funding, uh, to sell your for selling the product to others, uh, to hiring people. Uh, so that's always kind of a core belief in the business.
0: Now, what about the acquisition process? That's something that you know most founders don't have experience doing. And from the point where someone's like showing interest, which could be sometimes in the form of business development partnerships that end up going deeper into an acquisition conversation to that actual transaction. Like, What advice would you give to founders on that?
1: The the most important thing there is uh, know if you want to sell the business or not, uh, because that'll dictate almost everything else. So uh if you end up getting an offer you know or, or interest uh you know inbound whether it's through a business development relationship you had or a corporate development team looking to, to make a purchase or whatever else uh that's obviously going to feel good but if you don't intend to sell the business there's no need to at that time uh and it's not that the interest is going to wane away uh it's uh you know it, and, and and so that's really the the negotiating powers in your uh in your kind of pants is is the first piece um the the second thing is really there's uh, there's a bunch of maybe tactical advice in you know how do you actually you know uh, navigate those conversations and and make sure that you get the right price and and the transaction goes through and all that stuff uh but that's almost less important than understanding what is the uh, likelihood of the transaction going through because the biggest thing that biggest uh, you know drain on the company is that someone else reaches out or you reach out to them and you know it's a business development conversation and it turns into an acquisition it's really easy i remember feeling this trap in my mind at the first time around was it's really easy to think that the acquisition is done when you're really at the starting line and if it falls through, it actually can be very demoralizing. It could actually have an impact on the team, whoever you brought in as part of the transaction process. You might've given a bunch of stuff away uh, to this competitor potentially uh, that you didn't want to as part of the diligence process. Um, you have paid a bunch of legal fees. And so that kind of emotional roller coaster and kind of uh, it, it is really the best, the, the most important thing to worry about. Um, and uh, just be very mindful almost that that is, at that stage, the most likely outcome, even if, you know, you put your best foot forward. Uh, So I hate talking about the downside like that, but I think it's really important to frame your mind um, as that is the likely outcome and um, uh, to prepare for it.
0: I I just think that's a good heads up because you just read TechCrunch and everyone's, you know, the acquisitions and it's like, oh, it just seems like such an easy process. But so many of these conversations start out and it's a huge distraction. It's a deviation of time from building your business and moving it forward. And then if it doesn't happen at the 11th hour it's just like it's an emotionally disturbing thing it's time away from building your business where it should be that much forward and uh it's you know there's so there's both sides to the to the coin that i don't think enough founders hear that side that uh you need to be careful so um you have been an angel investor too. So how'd you get involved with angel investing and what advice would you give to others in terms of, you know, uh, getting involved with angel investments?
1: That almost happened by accident. I think uh, one of the things after the the first exit to box, uh, you know, I went back talked to a number of folks at Y Combinator and other folks in the network and asked them, hey, so what's next? And a lot of them said, hey, you know, maybe try uh, angel investing to kind of stay in tune with startups, because uh, I knew I didn't want to do one for some time at the time. And uh, so I said, okay, let me try it out. Uh, and I think, you know, over over the, the, the first few months of trying it out, the, the question that kept coming up, I, I, I kept answering, uh, I kept having to answer was, number one, um, you know, is this, wh- what value can I even provide to other other companies, uh, regardless of check size? And then number two, um, you know, do I actually enjoy it? And, you know, I think the first one is much easier to answer because that you can kind of list down your strengths and weaknesses and what you, you know, want to do. Um, and, but number two actually became the, the biggest question kind of over the years Um, having invested in friends that were starting companies uh, in other kind of Y Combinator companies uh, that, that I thought, you know, Hey, maybe this does kind of, I could maybe help or something uh, to that sense. And uh, you know, the issue that I kept coming back to was, I don't know if I'm good uh, because at the end of the day, an investor is measured by the output. Like the output is, is at the end of the day a financial output as you kind of measure it, but you need to wait, you know, six plus years effectively to even know if uh, things are going well. And so that was one problem. And I think the second thing in the back of my mind over time was, you know, hey, uh, I, I think operating uh, in, in, in a company um, uh, setting was still the, the most uh, compelling calling. And I did kind of believe in this philosophy of, you know, hey, look, if I'm going to do something, it's, you know, I, I don't want to just do something passively. And so, uh, you know, I think angel investing in, in a limited set of folks, whether it's friends or kind of within network was what I kept at that over time and really put all my focus at, um, into building a company.
0: All right. Some rapid fire questions, three apps you can't live without.
1: Three apps, uh, Reddit, number one, tons of information there. Um, let's see, number two, uh, Twitter for the same reason, um, you can curate, uh, a little better on that one. Uh, and number three, I would say, um, Yelp, uh, still the best app to explore the city in my opinion.
0: All right, podcast book recommendation for entrepreneurs.
1: Uh, I'll go with podcast. Um, the uh, uh, another podcast is um, uh, Acquired. Uh, it's love Acquired. Uh, yeah, phenomenal. Uh, phenomenal. It's, they, you know, <laughs> multi-hour deep dives into these you know these businesses all the way from the very start before the business even started about the industry all the way down to you know nitty gritty details that they uncover. Super fascinating. Love it. Uh, book recommendation is um, uh, it's a book by uh, Jessica Livingston uh, called Founders at Work. Uh, it's the first one I ever read kind of back almost 10, 11 years ago uh, and, uh, around entrepreneurship. And basically, just has, I think, 15 different stories from uh, founders of venerable companies uh, talking about the earliest days.
0: Another amazing suggestion. I actually looked behind me because I have that book in my office. I thought it was on my bookshelf here, but it's downstairs. Yeah, a great, great, great book, just talking about a lot of the web 1.0 companies, even isn't the story of Lotus in there too, I think. There's definitely, it might be, it's it's just, I mean, it's a great, great read, especially, you know, those foundational years of the web and everything and just what those companies were thinking about. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work?
1: I think. Number one is just uh soaking up as much of New York City as possible. I've been here two and a half years now, and so still tons of new stuff keeps popping up every every month. Uh so I call myself like, you know, the uh, uh pretty standard long-term New York City tourist. Uh so that's that's number one. Uh other than that, um, you know, always always down to go play a game of basketball, go skiing, something uh adrenaline sports related. Uh it's always uh you know, sign me up for it.
0: Well, Riddick, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great company experience that you've had building stuff and, uh, you know, so much great advice that you shared. And here's to, you know, Sappy being that multi-generational success story that is, uh, you know, swinging deep, deep, deep for the fences.
1: Amazing. No, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Really a pleasure.